Well, <coughs> Christmas is virtually over for another year. And uh, you may be relieved by this the, uh, Christmas tree decorations going to the loft and you can get back to some sort of normality. Or you may feel a bit sad. You enjoy and embrace all that Christmas has to offer. However, looking beyond the flashing lights on the tree, what do we take forward from all we have heard and contemplated over this Christmas period? Or do we put the truths of the Incarnation up in the loft as well? Perhaps we should be like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who in response to all the events of that night, that Christmas night, after the visit of the shepherds, etc. And Luke tells us, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So this evening I would like us to ponder or meditate <coughs> upon some of the truths of the Incarnation by looking at the opening verses of John's Gospel that we read earlier. So please turn with me to John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 18. I've had one of those times this evening when you suddenly realise that you've made a mistake on the slides. <laughs> right? And uh, I've put 1 to 19. The problem is, I can actually remember changing it from 18. So, it'll uh, keep me on my toes, won't it? We'll start by looking at the, the first five verses of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or understood it, as it may say in some translations. At first sight, these verses can overwhelm us. They contain so much truth about who Jesus is that we may struggle to take it all in. First of all, we must perhaps pause and ascertain what is meant by the term the Word when referring to Jesus. Why not just use the name Jesus or one of the many titles or attributes given to Jesus? Don Carson gives us this explanation. In the first verse, the one who is eventually said to become flesh, the Lord Jesus himself, is called the Word. The label is not only intrinsically peculiar, but at first glance is especially odd, because it is not taken up in the rest of the Gospel of John. But perhaps that is the first clue. If in this first verse John had used one of the titles ascribed to Christ throughout the book, Son of God, Son of Man, King of Israel, Messiah, and so forth, that title would have been elevated to the place of first importance. Instead, John uses an expression that encompasses all of them. 
He recalls that in the Old Testament, God's word is regularly the means by which he discloses himself in creation, redemption and revelation. The word of the Lord comes to prophets. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. God sends forth his word and heals the people. John finds it wonderfully appropriate in the eternal word that becomes flesh. God discloses himself in creation, revelation and redemption. Even the word, word, is evocative. We might paraphrase it, in the beginning God disclosed himself and that self-disclosure was with God and that self-disclosure was God. We see that in these verses John is referring to Jesus when he uses the term the word. In verse 2 the word is referred to as he. The term the word is not a nebulous philosophical statement but a person, God the Son, part of the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. John gives the event we call Christmas, the Incarnation, an eternal perspective. God's plan of redemption was not a reaction by God to the fall. No, God's plan of redemption is proactive. It was in place before the fall. In fact, it was in place before creation. It is an eternal plan. The bits and pieces are coming off my ears. Hang on, there we go. We're told in Romans verse five, chapter 5 and verse 6 that when the time was right, Christ died for sinners. Jesus did not just come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem. He already existed. In Bethlehem, the eternal Son of God made his entrance into the world of mankind. In verse 14, we read, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's plan of redemption is eternal. It was in place before any of what we call the cosmos was created. We see in these verses that the Word being God was active in creation, that all life has its origins in him and that he is the light of the world. How do we know that God's plan was in existence before creation? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, and verses 3 to 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now I don't know about you, but I have difficulty in comprehending things like infinity and eternity. And uh, I can remember actually as a child trying to imagine infinity and I found it quite scaring and probably I still do today because 
my mental capacity is extremely limited and is extremely finite. And we tend to think of eternity as well as only in the future tense. We think of eternity, of life without end, as something that's going on. But of course, <coughs> eternity has no beginning and has no end. God's love is eternal. It existed before the world was created. The psalmist describes it like this in Psalm 103 and verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. God's love is infinite and eternal. God is infinite and eternal. The word also is infinite and eternal. We bring we being finite have difficulty with the concepts of eternity and infinity. So we try to put them into human terms. And because of our arrogance, we do not like to admit that we do not have limitless knowledge. So science tries to give it values to show how smart we are. For example, they pontificate over the size of what they call the known universe in terms of light years. The latest thinking is about 93 billion light years across. That is about 560 and then 21 zeros, right? I'm not even going to try and explain it, miles. But they cannot say what is beyond that. They pontificate about the age of the universe but they cannot say anything about what was before or what is after. When we think of such things, we are in awe of the God who created it all. This same God whose power is infinite so loved us that he who is eternal entered our domain. He did not just enter it, but became part of it. And this was planned in eternity. You were chosen in him before the creation of this immense universe. Not only did he enter into it, his entrance was as a helpless baby, born and placed in a manger, a feeding trough. He lived a humble life and died a cruel criminal's death to redeem us and this was all planned before the creation of the world. The word in verse 4 is described as being life and light. Jesus said <coughs> in John 14 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In him is life. In John 10 and verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Real life is only found in Jesus, not only in this life, but also in eternity. The word is also described as light in verse 4 and continuing again into verse 5. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
The life of Christ is a light shining in a very dark world. And we don't need reminding, do we, of how dark the world is in which we live. And light illuminates it. It makes visible those things that are hid by darkness. I'm sure we're all pleased, <coughs> I know I am, that the winter solstice is past and we look forward to brighter, longer days. Light shows us the path before us. Without light we stumble and fall and we accept that light is good. We need light for many reasons. However, light also shows us the things we don't want to see. When the sun shines through a window, we can see the dust. When the light of the world shines into our hearts, it reveals our sin and depravity. It's little wonder that people love darkness rather than light. Later in his Gospel, John in chapter 3 and verse 19 tells us, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The light of the world shines into darkness. It searches it. It shows what is vile and corrupt, and we don't like it. This light cannot be extinguished. Those in darkness may not understand it, but they cannot overcome it, however they may try. At this time, as we celebrate the birth of our Saviour, the coming of the light of the world, many try to eradicate it by a variety of ways, from outright denial <coughs> that it ever happened to more subtle ways of trying to smother it by saying it will offend others or by adding half-truths to it that cannot deliver. They talk about the spirit of Christmas, about joy and peace and the time of giving. It's about family. And they say all these things, and sadly sometimes from the pulpit, but rarely mention that Jesus was born to give his life as a propitiation for our sin. If we are honest, the world has taken over Christmas. It is the largest holiday in the Western world. <coughs> they may take Christ out of Christmas, but they can never alter the fact that Christ came into the world to save sinners. The only hope for this dark world is the light of the world. For over 2,000 years, people have been trying by various means to snuff out that light, and they continue to try, but they will not succeed. Those who thought by crucifying Jesus they would put out the light were in fact used to fulfil his eternal purpose. <coughs> John then continues in verses 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John here seeks to clarify the role of John the Baptist. It may have been that some were putting too much emphasis on John's ministry. He does, however, assure his readers 
of John's divine calling. In verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He emphasises that John was not the light, but a witness to the light, preparing the hearts of the people so that they would believe in the light of the world. In verses 9 to 11, we see the response of the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. John now picks up on the response of the world to the light. John describes Jesus here as being the true light that gives light to everyone. There are many who offer hope or light to people and a hope or that can never deliver, whether it's a philosophical enlightenment, a political solution, a religious dogma, or having the latest technology and riches or whatever this world can offer. Only Jesus can give real hope in this world and the next. John echoes verse, in verse 10 the statement that he made in verse 3. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. The same Jesus came and made his dwelling in the world. Even though he was its creator, his creation did not recognise him for who he is. Jesus looked like any other man. We do not read in the Gospels any comments about his earthly physical appearance. They comment about his obedience to his parents, his wisdom, his grace and the authority with which he spoke. The Creator came to dwell with his creation and not only did they refuse to recognise him and Jesus provided adequate proof that he is the Messiah with his miracles and teaching, the religious leaders were in no doubt that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. However, they did not receive him. They rejected him. From the beginning they rejected their king. Look at the extremes Herod went to to try and eradicate Jesus. And the teachers of the law who advised Herod, did they go looking for him, to worship him? No. When he began his public ministry, they soon started plotting to get rid of him. It is no different today. We celebrate his coming into the world each year at this time. And many have celebrated this year and perhaps are still doing so. But they refuse to recognise who Jesus is. They want a Christmas without Christ. They don't mind the baby in the manger as long as he stays there. They like the story of the angels and the shepherds and the wise men. But a crucified, risen saviour who calls them to put him first in their lives, well, that's a bit too much. They want Christmas without Christ. It's always been the same. For the last 2,000 years, people have not received him. If we think that there was a time when everybody accepted the real meaning of the Incarnation, we delude ourselves. Many give lip service to him at Christmas, but the truth is that Jesus is not just for Christmas. 
you can't put him back in the loft with the tree. He didn't stay in the manger as a helpless baby and his light shines into the hearts and reveals our need of his forgiveness because we are vile and helpless. We need the Jesus who died on the cross. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's trying my patience. <coughs> However, we have the promise in verses 12 and 13. And despite the majority rejecting him, we get this wonderful promise that has extended over the centuries in verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That is not, that promise is not to just to those who saw and met Jesus in the flesh, but to all who believe in his name, which is another way of expressing believing in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. This wonderful truth that if we believe in Jesus, that is to acknowledge who he is and what he has done, therefore also recognising what we are, rebellious, sinful people, and come to him in repentance and faith, then this promise is for us. We have the right to be children of God. We cannot earn it. We do not achieve it. By our good works, we receive it. Paul expresses it like this to the church in Ephesus, to, in his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 2 and verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But this is emphasised in verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The first point he makes here <coughs> is, it is not of natural descent. We do not inherit it from our parent or parents, our grandparents or any other ancestor. Being born into a Christian home with Christian parents is a privilege, but does not make us children of God. Neither does being born in a so-called Christian country. Being a disciple of Christ is not a national identity. I read the other day someone describing themselves as a cultural Anglican, yet they did not believe in God. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that being born to Christian parents, coming to church, being baptised as an infant or as an adult makes you a child of God. It is only by trusting in him and him alone. If you have Christian parents or a Christian parent, this evening you are without excuse because you know and have heard the truth. Neither is it a human decision. It is not just an option that we choose among many others. 
It is in response to his call. It is not about making the effort to do the Christian thing. It's about wholehearted commitment to Jesus. Again, it is not about natural birth. It is about spiritual new birth, being born of God. John is alluding here to what Jesus says when talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3 about being born again, about spiritual birth, having new life in Christ. <coughs> we move on to verses 14 to 18, not 19. And uh, in these verses we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is the closest, in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. John uses the term, the word again here, along with the categorical statement that Jesus became flesh, that he entered fully into humanity the term flesh is used to describe humanity with all its weaknesses and frailties. At times we tend to forget that Jesus got hungry. He got tired. As a baby and as a man, he cried. He felt pain when the crown of thorns was placed on his head and the nails were driven through his hands and his feet and the spear pierced his side. He bled. He experienced all what life brings, all the pain and the suffering. He's not indifferent to what we face or to what we suffer because he faced it. He's not remote. <coughs> he does not live in some celebrity bubble and yet, he was without sin. John says, we have seen his glory. That glory was seen in his life by his works and his words, grace and truth. By his death and resurrection and his ascension, his ministry was a revelation of his glory, full of grace and truth. John was an eyewitness to the earthly life of Jesus. He could also be referring to the time when Peter and James, with Peter and James on the mountain, when Jesus was transfigured before them. They witnessed his glory. Peter, many years later, in 2 Peter 1 and verses 16 to 18, refers to it. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came 
to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. This verse again reiterates the fact that Jesus was both God and man. In verse 15 again, the testimony of John speaks about the eternal word. John says, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John's public ministry began before Jesus's. John was older than Jesus by several months, yet he says he was before me. That is, Jesus already existed before John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, made, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John reminds us in verse 16 that out of his fullness we have received grace upon grace, or one blessing after another. The all means that we are included in this, you and I. All who believe, all we have need of, is fulfilled in Christ. The law was given by Moses. In the law we see what a holy God requires of us. It shows us how much we need a saviour, how utterly desperate and destitute we are. In Jesus we see God's grace and truth revealed. Grace is unmerited favour. Finally, John concludes his section reminding his readers that we have never seen God face to face, nor has anyone else. Even Moses and Elijah were unable to look upon God to see the fullness of his glory. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who himself, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Again, the deity of Christ is emphasised that the only way that we can know God, or, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 4 and verse 9, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, is through Jesus. The message of Christmas is that Jesus is the only Saviour, and it is only by what he has done that we can know God. And this is God's eternal plan of redemption. Shall we close by standing and singing, You're the Word of God the Father.